Hey folks and welcome to a Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week we'll sit down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching, both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The Daily Ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing... The Barclays of Broadway, directed by Charles Walters, Pretty in Pink by Howard Deutsch, Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp, and finally newly released Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania, all directed by Peyton Reed. It's going to be a great show, folks, so stay tuned and enjoy. Vincent Daly, how's it going, buddy? Thomas, how's it going? Uh, it's going okay for me. How was your Ant Man filled week? <laughs> filled with ants. A lot of Paul Rudd. <laughs> a lot of, lot of Michael Douglas. Which is a not lot a bad of Michael Douglas. Yeah. Uh, it can be bad. Right. We'll get into that though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I would say it was a shell shock coming back to Marvel this week. I don't know what it was. Uh, I. This week, it was really pulling teeth to watch these Marvel films again. And I'm not even saying, really? like, Ant-Man was terrible. It just it felt like, I don't know, uh, coming off of the very it structured was- weeks, uh, it was uh, it was just a lot to go back to that Marvel writing style, the Marvel kitsch, the jokiness. Yes. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. So it just took me a minute to kind of get settled in it, again. It kind of sucks overall. <laughs> I mean, right? It kind of really, it, <laughs> really sucks. It kind of really sucks. <laughs> but yeah, I did enjoy um, uh, these movies this week. If anything, Michael Douglas was a highlight in all three of the Ant-Mans. So, okay. Uh, I can't wait to disagree with you later oh, in the episode. Oh, really? Yes. Like, oh, it's Interesting. He's been doing um, some Marvel watching himself. Yeah, boy, Marvel. It's funny. I was just I was putting stuff on the site and thinking about how our last, in my opinion, the last great year of movies mm. was 2007. <laughs> That's, That's a hot take. Is it a hot take? I mean, yeah. If you had a really, uh, I mean, I mean, if you think it put, if I, you know, gun to your head. <laughs> Right now. Okay. I think that makes the most sense. I, do you have anything better? Uh, maybe like a... What year was like uh, like Birdman and whatnot? Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> what was that, 2014 or 2016? Yeah, nothing in 2014, but... Can I... you name another thing with Birdman? Yeah, no, not off I the I think it was just Birdman head. and Whiplash. Yeah, yeah. Two great movies. Sure. But I'm talking about like, like 2007 was a great year for film. Oh, Absolutely. It's just it's no coincidence that the next year, 2008, is when the first Iron Man came out. <laughs> Which, generally speaking, we like the first Iron Man. Right. But, but it's it like, was the... we had no idea. <laughs> the first horseman. Of the manila folder, vanilla pudding <laughs> trash yeah. that was to ensue. For real. For real. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you what. First, let's finish up here. Wait. No, this is week. 
Last second to last week. Second to last week. Yep. Okay. Oh, we have. So one we got one more. I know. I was. I was tripped up too. You think February is such a short month? Not, <laughs> not <laughs> Fred Astaire's concerned. Yeah, Fred's Fred's got it in. All right. So we got a couple more here. But this is this is Fred Astaire. This is the Barclays of Broadway. Yeah. It's 1949 and 10 years that Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire didn't work together after yes. working together so much. They mm. come together finally. Uh, it's 1949, kind of late for Fred's career a sure. little bit, but they came back and they did this. We see some familiar faces. How was the Barclays of Broadway? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the big hook, and you hit the nail on the head, Tom, uh, the big hook here is the reuniting of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers uh, back together after a 10-plus year hiatus uh, and also dancing together the last time on film here. Uh, this is the last one. So in the seven or eight films we've covered of Fred on the podcast so far, you know, this is his most da- uh, most famous dancing partner. Um, she's been missing from all the films we covered, and right. uh, uh, I think there is a, a reason for that, for what we will touch on eventually with Fred. But, uh, folks, if you've been kind of tracking some of these movies, the writing is on the wall for which ones will make up the essential special list, uh, and a lot of those include Ginger Rogers. Uh, she is a tremendous talent, and, I mean, besides composing, or choreographing her own sequences like Fred does and Fred's uh, middle career is 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 populated with. He really has these kind of, you know, these not high concept, but these really ad- exciting, adventurous type of dance yeah, sequences. Yeah. Ginger is just as good of a dancer as him. Uh, she just doesn't get into that next stage uh, where she's choreographing herself, from what I've researched at least. Okay, all right. For now, uh, the Barclays of Broadway uh, covers a husband and wife performing duo, and of course that is played by Astaire and Rogers. Uh, they are king of queen of the musical comedy uh, and it's kind of interesting because this film has both a kind of a meta quality to it because they really are the king and queen of of being these dance partners but they also play that in the story as well that is kind of a wedge being forced uh, in between them as Ginger wants to pursue an acting, a dramatic acting career. This means breaking up their long-running act and putting the relationship on the rocks, and that's basically our setup here. Okay. Not exactly the love at first sight or love at first dance story that uh, Esther is so used to and so comfortable as a boot. Uh, Yeah, you always say... I didn't think I loved them, and now I love them. (laughs) Which is like a good like sixty percent of every one of these movies. So right off the bat, did this have a different flavor? And you're like, oh, this is new. I like this. It is. It's it's a bit. uh, It's definitely musical comedy. Don't get me wrong. But it is uh, a little bit more dramatic uh, and a little bit more meaningful in the arc, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Okay, Uh, it was a good switch up, and maybe that's just this being a little bit later. I mean, forty nine is not super. Late, but no, you know, no, <laughs> it's uh, it, it for is... his dancing career for yeah. Fred on film, kind of, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So. Now, it's you know, what doesn't really come up much we're talking about Fred Astaire mm-hmm. is, and even back when before the podcast, for the like when we working on the master list and everything mm-hmm. like that, his actual acting doesn't come up much because it's so sure. about the dance numbers, yeah. So, do we get more range from him because it's more dramatic? I, I think so, uh, and, and much like we uh, I we touched on on last year, we covered a film called Holiday Inn. Yeah, of course. Where yeah. Fred was more of an antagonist. That's Here, right. That's right. He kind of is semi antagonist as well. You know, uh, Rogers has these aspirations to go into dramatic acting and step away and grow. And obviously, his character 
is kind of wearing his feelings on his sleeve. He's very he's very sensitive to that mm-hmm. for comedic purposes, for being like, you know, he doesn't want to let her go. But also, in a little bit of a flawed way as well, he's uh, holding her back. And um, the film definitely doesn't hide away from casting Fred in a selfish light. Right. Uh, not, not emotionally abusive or anything like that, but definitely holding Ginger back from what she has as aspirations and dreams. That's probably enjoyable, especially if you watching so many Fred movies. Yeah. Just to yeah. see a different stereotype. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, it's it's funny, though, because I really don't like seeing my boy not ah. being the, the knight in shining armor, you know? Okay. It's And, and you know, and what's so weird is like, I experience this and I don't really experience that with anyone else. Like, I love villains. Like, I want everyone to be a bad guy. It's like, so true. Go back to last week with Matthew McConaughey. Like, I love when oh, actors yeah. I like become villains, but. Uh, Fred, okay, so Fred Astaire, and if Mr. Rogers <laughs> was ever a villain, it would upset yeah, you. Exactly. Don't touch That's kind him. of funny. Yeah. I, I would almost say I have that with John Wayne. Yeah. But then again, not really because The Searchers, in my opinion, is so great. And, sure. you know, Martin Scorsese's opinion and right. all the top guys right. except for one across the table here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, may, but, how many times has I given Searchers a shot? But the I point mean. is, a lot, a lot. <laughs> like, but we'll, we'll deal with that in the future well, yeah. for John Wayne's special. But yeah. the point is, I don't know if it's something about these old school guys that we learned to love on, yeah. on film, mm-hmm. but it's also a thing of, and Hollywood back then, where always the good guy, not a lot of great characters yeah. it's good or bad absolutely and our good boys are our good boys absolutely but that's cool that you got to see some range out of fred yeah absolutely and uh you know there's a lot of bickering back and forth between this one um and, and like i said it's it's at a little bit of the detriment of, of fred's character but i think where this evolves from uh, or, or where this kind of elevates uh the writing and the arc of fred's character is that there's an arc at all uh <laughs> you know it's that's not point. sunshine and days by the end, this film kind of balances that, which uh, is already off the bat, kind of puts it at a higher caliber than yeah. most, I would say. Definitely. Most of uh, Fred's other you know, musical comedies. What I didn't expect is that that good arc, you know, and most of this uh, is really going to give Ginger the the time on screen to shine. And I think, again, just how there's a, a, an interesting quality to the storyline being that they are the king of queen uh, of, of musical comedy and kind of splitting up over this as well. Uh, Ginger has this uh, approach to dramatic acting, which uh, I think is great. I like seeing her more on screen. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, really do uh, a research into where her career goes after this, but I think it's very interesting that you we have this story positioned as a in the marketing back in the day as a reuniting of these two talents and then the story itself kind of taking on a quality uh, that uh, they're going to be splitting up and this is going to be the last time we see him you know on film together basically a very interesting time capsule for that reason which was my comment last uh, with yeah. Lindsay Phil Follies. I, I think it's pretty I think it's pretty cool and it's it's almost a shame. She does she continues to act, but yeah. I don't think she's anything she's not an, in anything quite explosive. Right. And right. then towards later, later career like T V stuff and, mm, and things sure, like that. Sure. It, it's kinda of funny that we're still only talking about the forties. Like we're not even in the fifties with, <laughs> right. with these people. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's it's funny. Yeah. And there's plenty of uh, you know talent to go as far as that, but yeah, I I I, I found it really interesting that we have this uh, story 
not robbing Ginger's character of her aspirations and dreams. And even though this uh, this film very much is a comedy, don't get me wrong, uh, it is a musical comedy first and sprinklings of drama. Right. Those sprinklings of drama made it more realistic and felt quite modern despite being in 1949. I felt... Uh, it was much more of a modern spin, much more of a realistic spin as well to relationships as well. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, they're already established as husband and wife in this, and I felt like this was, uh, again, just a little bit more bold, a little bit more realistic than what we usually get, which is... Sunshine and Rainbows. Sunshine and Rainbows, such a such a uh, a gold a gold line of Hollywood, yeah, of yeah. show business. You know, they're always working performers in these films as characters. So it was interesting. Let's finish with some notable numbers here. Not a dance number, but composer actor Oscar Levant uh, is an absolute maestro on the piano. Okay, uh, he has two main performances here, which are just largely uncut and flat out impressive. Uh, I mean, wow. Uh, there is no doubt he's playing this himself. And I mean, really, uh, really, really stellar performances on the piano. Every moment that Fred and Ginger are dancing together is really dynamite. If anything, as a slight negative, I mean, just very slight, <laughs> they're, they look so happy and so joyous to be dancing together on screen it almost contrasts what's happening in the story a little bit because they're supposed to be a little bit on the rocks in the story with this fight uh, but is there something to be said to that they're like they're professionals oh maybe you know, they yeah. go out they, they, they get, they they get it done it, they and, get and then it. as soon as the curtains are closed they're just on they're fighting <laughs> yeah right right uh, I, I i like that perspective almost uh, like a desi arnaz and uh oh um lucille ball no, not I Lucy love Lucy. Yeah, not Lucy Ball. It is Lucy, but uh, well, I know that's funny. But, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it, absolutely. Trouble, trouble behind scenes. Yeah, but they of. put on a good face. Exactly. You know, they're professionals. Yeah. yeah. There's a great rehearsal number that just oozes the chemistry that they have on screen. And um, there's just such a playfulness to their tap dancing that always is on point. You can really see the joy in their eyes performing together again. And I mean, that's it, it, it's a very, very special number, this rehearsal number, almost like 30 minutes in. Fred also has a solo act, uh, Shoes with Wings, uh, that is so fantastic. I mean, really a top, top tier performance. Was this him. one we would all recognize if we didn't see the movie? Um, one of his classics or kind of not Tough so much? to say. I, I think I'm a bad judge just because I've research oh, Fred yeah. Astaire so much, you yeah. know what I mean? I <laughs> kinda kinda <laughs> in the deep cut territory for what's his what's his best performances. Yeah. But next February the book will just come out <laughs> from you. <laughs> right, right. I would love nothing more. That would be great. He's playing a shoe repair shop guy. Uh, okay. and all the tap shoes kind of get possessed and come alive. Uh, and they do this cool uh, I mean not not green screen, but this uh, this editing that obviously there's all dancers filling the shoes, but they all they they get they get you know po in post production yeah. kind of you know drawn out airbrushed out or whatever the uh, technique is. right right back in the back in forty nine you know whatever right. they were doing man it is just it, it is so good it's such a good concept such good storytelling in the dance itself uh, I mean just a classic example of how he can take a concept and execute choreography that is actually fun to watch yeah like it is that's a cool. delight to watch it unfold very cool uh, yeah I, I i just loved it to death uh i thought this was an excellent film though dynamic in its drama packed to the brim with great dance numbers 
Uh, and honestly, folks, if you haven't given any of these Astaire films a shot, uh, this might be a great start, regardless of being the closing chapter between this legendary duo. We're going to go ahead and give The Barclays of Broadway a 76. Oh, geez, that's a really good score. It's, it's up there. Yeah, it that is getting one. up there for Astaire movies. Yeah. Wow. I think, I was, I was looking back, I think it was the the best scoring Fred Astaire movie we've covered on the podcast on the po- so far. Yes, on the podcast, yes. Right, yep, right. there's so. still from that masterless kind of that we might want to do something special with or yep. down the road or we'd have plenty more to Fred Astaire. Absolutely. Believe it or not, but there's, <laughs> a, there's a lot from the guy. <laughs> Believe it or not, he's, he's a working actor. He's, he's getting it done. 76, Barclays of Broadway. Yeah. Wow. It was good. Yeah. Uh, and and that's where I even say, like, even though it's odd in how it's positioned uh, with this ending chapter sure. of uh, of Astaire and Rogers, uh, I think if anything, it has so much good in it. It might be a good jumping off point for a lot of people that. Yeah, have that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, I yeah. like that a lot. And I'll tell you what, just goes to show, if you're pre fifties, that doesn't mean. There's a reason to go back and watch some of these old films. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Uh, it might not feel the same as when watching them for the first time, of course, yeah. but even. This many years later, they're mm-hmm. still good movies, still good cinema. Uh, really cool. And it's this is color, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So we're going to jump ahead. This is 1986. We're still in our John Hughes study. Mm. This is film number three that we're covering. Yep. This is Pretty in Pink, and John Hughes is writing this one, not directing. Not directing, yeah. Unlike the last two with Breakfast Club and 16, 16 Candles. 16 Candles, yep, right. Yep. So Pretty in Pink, kind of what's our premise here? Set us up a little bit and how'd you like it? Sure. So Pretty in Pink is a pretty uh, <laughs> pretty by the numbers teen romance. The, the final destination is prom. It's uh, kind of set up as a love triangle, but isn't really a love triangle. So again, I was looking at this and I was saying, wow. How, you know, this, this is a blueprint for so much to come as far as kind of a teen romance uh, approach to it. Uh, I think the key thing with Pretty in Pink uh, is that it is pulling itself from older styles of storytelling, basically a love across a train tracks. I would say probably the most notable example mm. is going to be a West Side Story, which in itself lends from a Romeo and Juliet. You know what I mean? It's all right. shoulders of giants. So It's funny. That's one of your first comments you made. Yeah. It was one of big R- Roger Ebert. Gave, really? Roger Ebert gave, gave it like three stars, but his main criticism was that as he's he something like repetitive, repetitive, repetitive <laughs> plot. Yeah. However, it was executed well, something right, like that. Right, right. But that was his main gripe with it as well. Yeah, it's it's oozing style. I mean, it may be a uh, an, a tale as old as time as far as a romance yeah. go, but uh, it is it is drenched in eighties. Uh, so it kind of has its own identity when it comes to that. I mean, this is it's. Does it have just the fingerprint still of a John Hughes? I mean, he loves dealing with younger actors. Yeah. He loves dealing with these teen stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Pretty in Pink, the final kind of act was prom, correct? Yeah. Or some type of school dance at yeah, least yeah, at yeah. night. Mm-hmm. What's interesting at the, the Breakfast Club, which was the last thing that we did last mm-hmm. week, you said how original it was and how no one's really touched it since a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And here we're dealing with something very, very common that we've sure. seen the story before. Absolutely. But how does it play out for his writing and everything like that? I think it's good. Uh, I mean, John Hughes is basically continuing with his pet actor, Molly Ringwald, mm-hmm. uh, for the last time as well. He has basically, you know, you call it the, the Molly uh, trilogy or something <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> but it's really our only entry in the study that he only wrote. He d- didn't direct this one, as you as you, you said in the beginning, mm-hmm. all the more I think I felt it was important to to highlight this because I, I still think I mean all of these these movies they are so iconic. 
you can see them almost as bulletproof, but my job is to to review them with with fresh eyes, and yeah. I don't know if this eighty drenched in eighties really pays off, you know, on how on how not generic. I don't want to say generic, but straightforward uh, this type of romance is. Yeah, or execution too. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I mean because like even you things you praised about Breakfast Club mm-hmm. was the originality of it. Yeah, things that weren't good was kind of the writing. Yeah. And big time the acting as well. Yeah, big time the acting. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to this, you know, Pretty in Pink is an edgy hipster teen romance. And like I said, it initially feels like a love triangle, but is actually not a love triangle. It's more of a romance duo with two toxic best friends. And that's where you can kind of see the shapings of uh, of a Westride story. Um, you know, our main romance is between Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy. Real quick... <laughs> I couldn't find a good spot to put this in. Okay. <laughs> Real quick comic with Andrew <laughs> McCarthy. Unfortunately, I, and I, I, I saw this, I laughed at it, and I couldn't see anything else. He looks like Tucker Carlson in this film. He's got these sad eyes. That, That's hilarious. <laughs> these, these worried. That's hilarious. <laughs> these <gastro> eyes. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I, I hope not to curse anyone to see that same. Not that I mean, he's not Andrew McCarthy. Isn't really you know working too much now. He was in like uh, Orange Is the New Black, I think. So. But uh, I could not get it out <laughs> of my head. That's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> uh, it is the classic love from opposite sides of the tracks, like we said. You know, we have seen this constant, uh, constant, constant times. But when it comes to this, it's just how 80s. I mean, it is mm. dialed up past 11. Uh, that is how 80s this thing is. Drenched is, is the note. <laughs> uh, on Molly's side, we have John Cryer playing, uh, honestly, the creepiest clinger in the world uh, ever put on film. <laughs> <laughs> and on Andrew's side, we have James Spader in a role that will make you question if he's a high schooler or a drug crime lord. <laughs> James Spader is, sounds amazing. is insane in That's this. That's the yeah. one hook, I think. <laughs> to get people to watch. I'll tell you, I uh, mean, James Spader a, was, was not a disappointment here. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, definitely yeah. a big cast. Yeah. I mean, John Cryer, if that rings any bells, he's a guy who's, who's done... Two and a half men. Two and a half men for, yeah. for how many years? Yeah. And, and yeah, a young James Spader, right? Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I don't guess know everybody's how pretty young, young but, uh, but yeah, definitely, or, you know... Way, way before he was doing anything like with Stargate or you know some of the some of the sci-fi's right. he was uh, acting in. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nonetheless, <laughs> he's still like 100% James Spader. <laughs> like he's been the same person awesome. his entire life. That's cool. Like we said, the destination for the story is senior prom, and, and in that itself, it, it it's fairly generic. Uh, speaking honestly, I really flip flopped through the room, uh, through you know, watching the entire film on if the huge style of the film has enough to mask a age old generic teen rom com. Uh, but I cannot overstate how distilled the '80s is in this film. I mean, top to bottom, it is maxed out. The soundtrack, I would say, is a big highlight for me. All new wave and perfectly moody, and I think really not only being a time capsule for what was playing at the time. And I, that's not something I really give points to. Uh, I think it's originality and being a soundtrack for these kind of misfit, you know, hipster characters. I felt it was very okay. appropriate. I mean, that's kind of surprising because <clears throat> what can make a movie such 80s and drenched mm. in 80s is the music. Sure. sure. Um, so I guess that's good. Did it feel like 80s, but it wasn't that, I don't know, generic guitar and... It felt like uh, an 80s movie that a hipster chose the soundtrack to, which these characters are hipsters. 
hipsters okay. or, or before hipsters. Okay. You know, they're hip. They're just hip. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I mean, I think a, a positive as well alongside of that style uh, is just how hyper stylized the fashion is. Every single character has a, a, a layer of character mm. on top of their acting. And, right, And it's right. done by this wardrobe. Poor kids will have all these mix-matched hipster outfits uh, with funky clashing patterns while the rich kids are covered in loose-fitting designer clothes clothes and soft powdery colors it's a it's a really easy way that you can see you know the us versus them yeah. type of uh, mentality that's going on here let's talk about performances uh, and I'll start with the black eye on the film John Cryer is <laughs> real bad I, I did not like him at all in this he's extremely grating character as a uh, ducky ducky plays the <laughs> clinger or ducky is the clinger best friend on Molly's side and it's a shame because looking online, the reverence, the, the you know, uh, the the hardcore Pretty in Pink fans, they love it for Ducky. So I was really? completely on a different page here. Yeah, I bet you would be, <clears throat> when doing research on the film, mm -hmm. uh, two actors that were seriously considered mm. was a young Charlie Sheen. Okay. Who probably would have done... Sure. Pretty good. Yeah. And also, of course, a young Robert Downey Jr. Oh, would have taken absolutely. Yeah. Would yeah, have yeah, taken yeah. him. Absolutely. Uh <laughs> I mean, it, the the character writing would have been the same. It still would have had this kind of creepy tone of him. Because like, that's supposed to be the character. Exactly. Right. He's he's, yeah. he's the you know, he's the key to what makes people think this is a love triangle. I think that's a misunderstanding of this film, though, and the dynamics. Okay. That both the main duo love interests, they just have two really messy loose ends. Uh, on Molly's side, it's 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 Ducky, basically. Okay. When it comes to that, though, I mean, I just think he fails at any charm, and that's the only thing the character <laughs> is being pointed towards. Like, he's like the annoying theater kid in high school. Ah, okay, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, but yeah. back in the 80s, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's very interesting because Hughes is clearly trying to write a proto-Ferris Bueller in this. Um, he even does the Ferris Bueller look at the camera at one point, and uh -huh. it's like, wow. Even, even I mean, he's not uh, directing here. Even the framing is so close. I was like, okay, this is... I, it's I, got Johnny. It's yeah, John exactly, Hughes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's what I love in looking through, you know, chronologically of films, um, you know, seeing that precursor, seeing that he saw something work, and now that's going to be fuel for, you know, a later entry. Yeah, very cool. But I think it falls flat because he's a creep. Like, he's a hardcore creep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the film tries to, you know, give him his own little redemption. I just think it fails. It's crazy how much focus he's given in the film, too. I mean, I think he has some really iconic scenes. There's uh, an iconic scene where he's singing uh, Otis Redding, an Otis Redding song, but got to be honest, I just think uh, the depiction of the character, I just was not digging at all. The big turnaround for me was James Spader, though. He was fantastic in this, and fantastic to see so early on his, in his career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's so perfect. He acts like a supervillain. It was like it was like Ultron. <laughs> it was like Ultron in high school. He smokes in school. He throws like coked out parties for all the seniors, and it, he dresses like he's in Scarface. Like he's straight up. Like it's it's it, like this loose fitting pastel powdery colors. Like it, it is wild. Total delight, uh, and 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 him base basically being in a villain role in this was was a good was a good time. Uh, it does beg the question though, and I think this is what I end on with the film. 
are we even in school? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, you know, there's a serious disconnect on yeah, how our yeah. characters operate and what they're supposed to be in their lives. Yeah, I wonder if it would be better. Okay, we have teens and we know that they're high school age, but this sure. would be summer break. Uh, summer break. Well, the thing is, they even go to a, a Andrew Dice Clay is in this. Yes, Dice Clay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and they, there's like a, I don't know, there's like a young adult club that they go to that a lot of like, you know, kind hmm. of uh, punky moody bands play in. And it's just like even that as a as a setting, I was just like... I don't know. Just make them in college. Just make them. They, they can oh, actually really? drink. You want to? Oh, yeah. You want a little older? Okay. Yeah. And, and and even as this relates to James Spader's character, the parties that he throws, like how insane. he talks. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like some, he's stalking the halls, smoking cigarettes. It's just like it just doesn't really work. Yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. feel like it's certainly cool for a high school perspective. It was causing me though to say like. I don't know. I feel like the high school spin of this, yeah. that obviously is the you know, Hughes' comfort huge, yeah, zone. It's, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I felt like it was more of a burden this time. So, huh. if that makes sense. Uh, it definitely makes sense. They're, yeah. they're acting a little bit older than what they're actually supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, a huge in the film. disconnect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Make it four years in advance and they're in, in college. Exactly. That'd be interesting. Yeah, and I, I think it's just a lot. Better, now, the big hook so. for the movie is the end prom, though, correct? Like, it, the, yes. do, do things hinge on the prom and what happens at the prom? Yeah, that, that's the, the ultimate destination for all the romance. Yeah. Uh, you know, who who will Molly go with? Basically. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and again, that those sides, those are the more generic sides to it. It's just more so the, the you know, what it's wrapped up in uh that's that's unique like i said i was on the fence with this one while there are super unique aspects that i liked quite a bit uh, each one is met with something that i can knock the film for uh, i really wanted to love this movie but i guess i'll just have to wait a bit more for hughes to knock it out of the park we're gonna go ahead and give pretty in pink a 65 okay 65 yeah, yeah. he's kind of he's kind of living here i know which is Totally unexpected, uh, but I'm. I mean, l- let me be honest. I, weird science is next. I don't think weird science is escaping higher than a, you know something in the we'll sixties. I, we'll I thought you liked that movie. I, I, I like is it, it. The nerd in you that. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I guess so. I mean, I I think I watched it drunk and I was like, oh, this is oh, right. Oh, okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was like Danny Elfman's doing the music. You know. It's also. <laughs> it, it's it's also. Uh, as 65 also kind of makes sense. This, yeah. These are te- the teen... These are teen movies. Comedy dramas. Yeah. In the 80s. Exactly. Would so, I, you know, score a Disney Channel movie higher? I don't know. I mean, you know, that's well, basically... <laughs> oh, I know it. He's good. Apologies <laughs> to John Hughes and the Hughes family. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'll uh, see. We have two more to go. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the final destination is Ferris Bueller. So yes. uh, I'm very excited And more in the that. future then, too. Yeah. Because we can take him through the 90s. If we want Absolutely. Got Home, Home Alone, Alone Flubber. Flubber. <laughs> <laughs> not rehearsed. <laughs> not <laughs> just genuinely on the same Genuinely excited exact... for Flubber. Uh, okay, all right. So that's 65 Pretty in Pink for uh, for John Hughes. We'll keep that going. We'll keep that going for next week. Next week yeah. you're doing one, right? Or are you gonna uh, I think that, so. doesn't that work with the films? Uh, we only have cocaine bear. I don't know. And, uh... Well we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it pans out. Okay, so we're going to go ahead into our trilogy here. Mm. We're stepping into Ant-Man. Yep. These came out in 2015, 2018, 2023. Mm. I'm glad that we're doing all three. Yeah, I, I honestly needed to. Yeah, so. 
Oh, that's very true. Yeah. None of these have been rated before. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, going back to 2015, it's Ant-Man origin story. We have to get to know him. Yep. have to introduce our characters. Mm-hmm. You said before we have, uh, not Michael Keaton. Who do we have? Michael Douglas. We have Michael Douglas, uh, Paul Rudd. Evan- say it. Evangel- Your girl. <laughs> My girl, Evangeline Lilly. <laughs> Why don't we get into this origin story here? How did you... Yeah, let's just get into it. I'll okay. say right off the bat, I watched one. I, okay. I called, Did you watch two? I, okay. I called Vin, folks, <laughs> and I said, I'm going to be watching two movies. I said, I'm going to be watching Ant-Man and Ant-Man 2 unless you have – unless you tell me otherwise. Unless it's right, just like, right. well, no, you should watch Pretty in Pink or something like right. that. And you said, well, don't really need to watch two. You said, watch <laughs> yeah. watch one because yeah. it's kind of interesting, you said. And right. that's all you gave me. Yeah. And you said, don't watch two. So I watched both. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I think I'm I we might have some some discourse here. Really? Mm-hmm. You're looking uh, negatively towards these films or, or positively. Well, it it's it's just in areas yes and no to both of those, sure, but sure. it's also yes and no for you, but it may be in our different areas. Mm, true. Let's get into Ant-Man 1. It's an hour and 57 minutes. Sure. How do we get into the origin story first? Uh, I would say Ant-Man 1 not trying to be an Iron Man, which so many of the MCU origin stories try to be. They just try to copy Iron Man specifically. First Doctor Strange is a great example of this, that just trying to be Iron Man 1. Flashback to 2015. Uh, this movie was actually a kind of a, a personal boycott film because they got rid of my boy Edgar Wright. He was slated to direct it? Uh, direct it and write okay, it. Okay, so he still uh, wrote it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, Wright was announced very early on in Kevin Feige's early planning of the MCU. I think he was announced, you know, basically in the Phase 2, uh, you know, right early before phase Avenger two. 1, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and rightfully so, because, believe it or not, in the comics, Ant-Man is a founding member of the Avengers. <laughs> he's like a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hank Pym is like, uh, you know, the original Ant-Man, he's, he's big, so... Uh, the classic thing with these, going back to the production history of this, is, you know, what's what's the age-old thing that Disney cites? They cite creative differences that caused a split, and Ant Man went on the back of back of the burner for me. You know? And Edgar Wright probably wouldn't have make a good movie, sure. and they didn't allow it to be a good movie. Right, right. Um, <laughs> it would have been probably amazing for Edgar. You, you, like you just said, you're a huge yeah. Edgar Wright fan. Yeah. If yeah. you go on and you look at the ratings, Vin mm-hmm. is a massive Edgar Wright fan. He wrote it along with uh, Joe Cornish. Paul Rudd also helped write it. And mm. Adam McKay, who's who's a, who's a powerhouse at this time. Oh, sure. So the writing team behind it is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a huge shame mm-hmm. that Edgar Wright didn't direct it. You can only imagine how special it would have felt. Yeah. And, uh, uh, creative differences. But maybe for the okay. better. You know, maybe him working on a heist movie, that led to Baby Driver in some way. You know what I mean? So that I can be... I I can be thankful for that he's yes yes yeah because who yeah. cares about Ant Man really? <laughs> right. Here's what shocked me. Yeah, because I forgot about the writing team, and then when I was I was looking at the writing team, that's what maybe was just like, oh, I want to watch this. Yeah, okay. Uh, I was super disappointed with the writing mm. and super disappointed with Michael Douglas. Oh yeah, and almost everybody. Really? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So I mean, uh, I, the the crew. How? What do you think about the crew? Uh, Michael Pena and, and oh, and his- hated. <laughs> Hated that part. Oh, really? Hated it. Hated it. Wow. Oh, my God. The comedy wasn't landing or what? <laughs> yeah. The comedy wasn't landing and the actors weren't selling it either. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Fair enough. Hated Fair enough. it. Hated hey, listen, it. Listen, this, this kind of gut reaction was exactly where I was coming yeah. from with kind of 
I don't know. It, it wasn't. I mean, I'm coming off of Magic Mike. It's not like you know, for sure, for sure. I don't know why I had this gut reaction coming back to Marvel this week, but uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm with you. So okay, so you are okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I, that, I don't think. Well, I, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I feel like I'm kind of throwing the review no, all over the no. place, but I figured we'll just set it up in our feelings of first and two and three are kind of be a little bit more breezy. We can, we can be all over the place. <laughs> I do want to go back to the origin. It's kind of surprised me when you said it, we're getting a different type of origin story here. Yeah. Uh, in what way do you feel that it's different from the others or from that Iron Man? I, uh, I what think the, I, uh, I think the Iron Man formula is Act One: uh, Hero is injured. Act Two: uh, You know, superpowers uh, anointed. You know, given. Uh, okay. And uh, then Act Three is is plug for other Marvel stuff. You know, what I mean. Um, okay. So that that's where I would say this this doesn't fit that bill exactly because. Um, I mean, uh, Scott Lang as a character, he's a criminal. He's definitely kind of broken in the beginning. Uh, I, I think this just does a lot more fun. It uh, has a lot more fun with just being a heist movie, uh, and at least is trying to have fun with, okay. uh, with the satire and the comedy. Uh, clearly yeah. not landing. Well, for, you. <laughs> for me, I think it's a bad heist movie. Oh, fair. Not fair. once in my not once in my head that I think I'm. I was watching a heist movie. Really? Yeah, I think it was a bad heist movie. Okay. I fair think enough. again. I th- almost think everyone bad. And the, <laughs> and the and the only question is on the bad scale, who's really? worse and who's. Wow. Who's got awful. I love it. And who's relatively bad. This is great. I didn't like Evangeline Lilly. I didn't like Michael. Michael Douglas was not good, but I think the no. ri- I think the writing was shit. <laughs> honestly. See, I like Douglas. I, I thought he was uh I, his his quippiness wasn't Marvel quippy. It was uh he was just kind of like a sassy asshole, you know. I, yes. The the way the lines were delivered, honestly. Yeah. It was he might as well phoned it in. <laughs> It, I just wasn't impressed with any. I, nothing was sold to me. And then the bad guy, yeah, terrible bad guy. Sure, I mean he played. He was a, <laughs> he was a good dorky governor or in uh, a race to become governor in House of Cards. <laughs> he was right. a great character uh, for Kevin Spacey to kill. <laughs> right. But as the Whoa, main as, spoilers, as, as the main <laughs> season one, <laughs> season one spoilers. As the main bad guy, Corey Stoll was a joke. He just looks goofy. I mean, we have a very true. He's just a goofy person. Very true. Um, and yeah, I, it's just Rudd as the character. I understand why they picked it. Him. Uh, it, it's like I'm supposed to believe that he's. He doesn't even look or feel like a criminal in any sort of way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, know. I thought that I, I, fact I, I, was odd. It, it, uh, Scott Lang in the comic books is actually a criminal. So I, one of my earliest notes was just like, why are they making him an ex-con? But apparently, that's they the should have made books. him cooler. The, and the I just thought the writing was bad, and I don't think anyone delivered it. Yeah, well, anyone, anyone, sure. sure. I don't know if there's a character I enjoyed in the movie. Wow, <laughs> I'm not joking. I, I think you're you're right on the money in the sense that we are up. on opposite sides for the first time. I mean, I I think uh, I don't think for the first time, but. <laughs> I think uh, I was much more positive on this film. Uh, not that right, I well, was. I'm going to shut I, up. I want to hear. I, yeah, I want to hear kind of your perspective. <laughs> let me. Let me. Let me. Th- let me see you for a second. I, I think uh, the best way I would set up someone for this is that it's 40% comedy, 40% heist, 20% having to hit on the Marvel continuity. I think if hmm. there's anything that was. You know, really detracting this from me from enjoyment. It was that forced in Marvel continuity. All of the Ant Man films are placed very awkwardly as kind of transition films between major movements in the MCU. Yeah, so, very true. When it comes to 
you know, who suffers? Well, guess what? It's the Ant-Man movie that suffers, you know? Yeah. It's, it's Ant-Man's character. This film, honestly, was right on point with the latest Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, that I felt like it was having a lot of fun. I felt like there were some things that were exciting that it did very creatively, but ultimately it was hindered by having to check the boxes for the MCU plugins, basically. Okay, that surprises um, me. Were you So you were having a good time watching it? I think I was, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay, all right. Because, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, no, no that's, that's fine. I'm <laughs> yeah. genuinely curious. Uh, I mean, I think Scott Lang, uh, you know, played by Paul Rudd, you know this this depiction of a criminal with heart getting out of jail roping into one last job i think that's very generic but as soon as he's introduced to this kind of trap that michael douglas lays as as dr hank pym i feel like it was just i i was digging that environment i i was that relationship i was digging uh, Michael Douglas kind of poking fun of them, them though both being smart, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Hank Pym being like so much smarter as a character. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought that relationship was a highlight for for me when it comes to those two. Comedy wise, I would say it's heavy on Rudd's shoulders. Uh, there's a lot of attempted satire. <laughs> <laughs> like a attempted, uh, but uh, it's it's real hit or miss, uh, especially with 2015 Marvel. Um, yeah, I mean, we really have to kind of flash back to what type of comedy was being written with that. I mean, it's all mm-hmm. Marvel kitsch. It's all schlock, yeah, right? Marvel schlock, yeah. But, but it's it's evolved, and and, and you yeah, know. for sure, yeah, yeah. So, like I said, I was gonna kind of ask why he was so badass or being portrayed as badass, but uh, he's an ex-con in the comics, so I guess that's what it has to be his crew of friends that help out uh, with these comedic beats uh most notably michael pena interesting I-, I think the only time that i was really really laughing was uh he does there's these segments that michael pena does a voiceover of uh other act other yeah. stories recalling it's it's right out of uh, drunk history if you've ever seen that show it's it's stripped right out of that kind of concept that we have a funny voiceover yeah. to actors kind of taking a story semi-seriously. I had to say, after those segments, it was like, well, they tried it at least. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it those was... are where it slightly works. So Okay. <sighs> now you're digging it. No, I was like, He's why is... frowny face. This should have been done better. This <laughs> yeah. could have been done cool. And that's... Honestly, you know what's funny? When As soon as mm-hmm. I saw that, I was like... Oh my God! If Edgar Wright should have just directed this, it would have been so much oh, better. Oh, absolutely! I also it, it, it's also I'm not the biggest Paul Rudd fan. Okay, because I find him kind of I don't know. I'm not g- defending Rudd. G- so. Generic. I have never. I don't think ever liked. In fact, actively probably disliked movies more because of Michael Pena. <laughs> really? Them. Yeah. What? I think he makes most movies worse. <laughs> Uh, Axe to grind for Venya. Yeah, again, I don't know. He's like generic. Guy. He doesn't add anything ever. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Not the Fair biggest enough. Pena fan. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so here, here's here's the the, the whiplash. Uh, uh, my note here is that I felt that this movie was surprisingly good in ways. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't expect how you know re- really if I can kind of boil it down to three points. One. I did not expect how much literal ants would be in the plot. <laughs> and yeah, like too, literal ants too. are like <laughs> kind of solving the plot. <laughs> like I didn't uh, hate that by the way. Yeah, I I see that and that relates to to Michael Douglas. And one you know? thing yes, and 
I guess. One thing was <laughs> I, they didn't make the ants super gross looking. Sure. You know sure. what I mean? It was yeah. just like, oh, this works. Yeah. I was all right with that. There's a, there's a cuteness to it. Yes. So uh, I am a huge fan of Michael Douglas as an actor. Uh, here, I thought, again, he, he Hank Pym is an interesting character. Uh, you know, he's supposed to be like a, one of the smartest characters in all, all of Marvel Comics. Yeah. So um, did you really like him? I mean, I thought his line delivery was t- was not good. Really? Yeah, I really did. I, think I thought it was bad. Michael Douglas. Maybe it is. Yeah, maybe they maybe you just <laughs> maybe I just maybe, don't like Michael Douglas. Act, act to grind. <laughs> I guess I was just happy with his character that he wasn't just sidelined as a mentor. Like, him controlling the ants, basically, he's Ant-Man too. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He's Ant-Man as well. <laughs> yes. I should say, not him too. Ah, it's just, they just gave him a bunch of one-liners. Yeah, yeah. It was a little annoying. Yeah, true. I mean, hey, I mean, yeah, that's that's Marvel. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> Corey Stahl, uh, I mean, I 100% with you that, like, he's not acting good in this i did enjoy how like He's the goofy bad guy 100 percent cartoonish villain he was i mean he turned someone into a booger at one point right and yeah. i mean i don't know i there was there was a moment that i was like okay uh this is right on point with old marvel pre-black panther pre you know uh infinity war where their villain characters are just like 100 percent villain there's no depth to them being written any deeper that you can agree with them in some way or, or anything like that. Basically how we see with Killmonger in, in Black Panther 1. Uh, but I'm telling you, Corey, I think he is where the comedy works because that's the best satire. That is where like the evil corporate villain he's like <laughs> I, yeah i do get it. i think there was a couple times i smirked but the problem is he's not believable sure so when you have sure. him becoming really bad guy yeah and taking form into bad guy yeah, yeah. um it, it's not believable yeah it's not believable sure. i almost would have rathered him make him like the boris character for 007 make him the <laughs> like the nerdy right hand man to the sure. really bad guy to the bad guy i yeah, don't know right, I, right. it's just you know what i mean i understand he was over the top. Yeah. The menacing part wasn't believable. Sure. So when he got menacing, it's like, goofy I, guy. I mean, I mean it was definitely cartoonish, but I think it leaned into the cartoonishness so much. Okay. You know, uh, that, that's where yep, I, I yeah. thought the highlight was. No doubt he wasn't. He was hamming it up. Yeah, sure. exactly. Exactly. Uh, and third and most importantly, and, and, and it's, it's a shame that the sequels lose this. I actually think this is some of the best CGI in, in Marvel. No joke. Uh, I'm telling you, these shrunken sequences against all odds, I think they look so interesting. They look so good in comparison to other times. I mean, Marvel CGI is infamous. It's terrible. Yeah, not as bad as DC, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, when, I, when I say these, these shrunken scenes, uh, what, what is removed from future sequels is that Ant-Man is not given time during while well, he's as the size of an ant. In this film, constantly when he's shrinking, there are entire sequences that play out that he has to interact with something real in the environment or something that is tied to how we can see uh, in real life uh, what it would be like to be shrunk down to that size. And I think it does a lot for the CGI. Uh, One, there is a soft blurring around the edges of the frame that making a really effective shrunken feel, I think, sells the CGI much better hmm. than having the CGI just be in front of interesting, yeah. you know, actual, you know, actual footage. Yeah. So I think it kind of sells its own environment, if you will. 
And I think it's effective because it takes these real textures that we're used to and real objects and uses them to great effect to kind of sell the illusion of the shrinking. You do not see this. I think there's like one scene in the second one and it's completely missing from the third. And I don't know why because I think they're the most effective scenes at selling the fun of Ant-Man. It is the best part of Ant-Man 1. And yeah. this is when I was like, oh, okay. When you had said, at least it's interesting. One is yeah, interesting. Yeah. This is where I found it interesting as well. Yeah. I did enjoy watching these scenes. Yeah. This was, in my opinion, the most clever. Mm-hmm. It was the most engaging to mm-hmm. just be in and watch for sure. Yeah. And they definitely do a decent amount of them. Yeah. They were playing with the tech. Definitely. And it was, right. It, it's great though. And I mean... And you see when, when Ant-Man eventually gets his enlarged power, it's a complete reversal of why these scenes work. Because it's, guess now we have a CGI Paul Rudd giant on the screen in a real environment. Right. In an actual filmed environment. Yeah. And it looks out of place. Where my praise here is that so much is being done to create this shrunken down feeling yeah. and tie it to real objects, real textures that we're used to, that it sells the CGI it as works. a fantasy. I, I think it really sells the illusion much more. I, I think you're totally spot on with that. Yeah. And it was, yeah, definitely the most enjoyable parts of the movie yeah. for me as well. So maybe, I mean, maybe not best of the MCU, but I really think, I mean, it, it was I, it, shocking to me how the number one problem with Marvel is rushed CGI. And that was not, I mean, that was a highlight here. I think the 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 best highlight. Yeah. And I, and I would say, yes. <laughs> I almost, I almost wish we. Could, I mean, it's now the film is what eight years old now. It probably, you know, it would look even that much better. Yeah, eight years ago when, when it first came sure, out. Sure, but definitely, whether it's still that great a CGI, mm-hmm. the point is it's also unique. It's yeah. unique for for something that Marvel's doing here. Yeah, yeah, and you could almost say that give a little bit of praise of maybe to the first Doctor Strange, mm. the way it's kind of playing with the dimensions and everything yep, like that. Absolutely, it's, at least it's something different. Yep. Uh, so definitely praise there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say there's a lot that works in this film, uh, and for me, it was it was shocking that those best aspects um, were sidelined in the sequels. I mean, like really sidelined. In the sequels, we'll get into it, but we see that the the shrinking effect becomes kind of a quick up and down that they just kind of pop in and out of, and none of this this world of of honey i shrunk the kids is 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 given any kind of attention mm-hmm. and i think that again that's where the film was a lot of fun and and looking the best so uh it has no right being 2 hours long but uh <laughs> it was surprising how much it was worth watching um even past its placement in the uh mcu timeline we're going to go ahead and give ant-man a 67 Okay, that's, I'm fine with that. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm not mad at that. I think this was neck and neck exactly with um, a second Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. Okay. And how creative and how much Pendon Reed as a director was able to put a stamp on it. Yeah. Maybe that was some aftermath of uh, the skeletons of Wright's script. Uh, but uh, I think this was uh, a breath of fresh air, even going back to a 2015 Marvel movie. Like, okay. why would you ever return to this? I, yeah, <laughs> I, can, I can almost, I can respect that. I can respect yeah. that. All right, give me it. 
<laughs> I don't think I'm gonna give it shoes. I don't think no it needs. Shoes. I don't think it needs shoes. I don't know. I don't. I, wow. <laughs> hey, listen. That's, that's it's that thing. If like I don't care enough about it. Fair. But fair. all I know is I didn't really like it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know that I liked two more. <laughs> Whoa! Okay. Oh, yeah. We are on the total, yeah. total opposite end. You no, like two more? Listen, not by all. Walter Goggins could not have saved that movie. What? Okay. So, first of all, let's just finish up with Ant-Man. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm not going to give a shoes. It would be, for me, somewhere around one shoe, probably. <laughs> okay. I don't, actually, I don't think a second shoe is getting on that foot. Yeah. Fair, fair. Okay. So three years later, uh-huh. we're back. We have the same main cast. We have Michael Douglas, uh, Evangeline Lilly, who, by the way, I didn't really enjoy in the first one. I'm glad uh, they changed yeah, up her my... hair in the second one much better. Sure. She's cooler in the second one. I think they should have made her even cooler. Yeah, but, but honestly, in all three of these, very minor. She, I think she gets, you know, she's sidelined despite she now she's the sharing main... the, the, yeah, the title. She's the lead female. It's yeah. just like, what? It, it, she's the wasp. Make it's, her yeah. cooler. Make her cool. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, um, we're back with Paul Rudd and all the greats. All, and <laughs> Michael Santa is back, or what's his Penna. name? Penna's, Michael Penna is back as well uh, as Paul Rudd's buddy. And I think the reason why I like two better, mm-hmm. I'll just give, yeah, I'll give my 10,000 foot view. I love can, it, yeah. You can get it to the weeds of Go what it, it is and how you liked it. But overall, for the second Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp, I like it because I'm not. we're not dealing with an origin story, which much like you kind of have problems with where you're just like done with it. Mm. Um, I like the fact that we know what we're dealing with yeah. and we're just get right into it for okay. the most part. Fair so enough. I like the fact that we don't have much of this origin story, the shock and all of, of finding out that you're Ant-Man, that kind of mm, stuff. Sure, sure. I also like it because I thought the bad guy and the way the bad guy works and operates throughout mm. the world, kind of cool. Yep. Uh, Ghost. Right, right, yep. yeah. It honestly could have been because I watched it back to back that I I had been prepared. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you don't expect greatness. Don't right. expect that the joking is actually going to be good. Yeah. The writing won't be good. In my opinion, the line delivery won't be good. Mm-hmm. Acting will not really be good. <laughs> so the bar so, was set so catastrophically low it could be something so dumb as that too <laughs> right. it, had i watched two first and then went to, oh what where did his stories sure, yeah. start and i went yeah. to one I, I could be reversed on this yeah and that's what I'm saying. it's not that big of a <laughs> statement it's a very loose this is better than the than the first one <laughs> right but generally speaking i kind of like the pacing of film too and i like the story a little bit more i thought lawrence fishburne i liked lawrence fishburne in it really as well. wow yeah. Wow, we are, I'll tell you what. I fell asleep during both of them, by the way. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Rudd's putting him to sleep. He's getting some shut-eye on this. So that's my very uneducated kind of review. <laughs> no. Why don't you take it? What are we dealing I'm with glad, this one? I'm glad uh, that you, you did enjoy two because I think two has the potential to do some, some Michael De- Douglas has more depth as well. Sure, and sure. Yeah, he's not a character it. of one-liners. Mm, fair, fair. I think it's valid criticism. And come on, we can, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer is stuck somewhere in the multiverse <laughs> so thing or whatever like that. It's, right. I'm, I'm in. I'm down. Well, well, we'll get to Michelle Pfeiffer in, in three. I mean, it's a doozy. <laughs> uh, um, but we are continuing the uh, the Peyton Reed um, trilogy here. For those that uh, don't care about maybe some of the Edgar Wright stuff, I mean, Peyton Reed, interesting as far as a comedic director. I know him from Yes Man, uh, which is. Uh, <laughs> It's Paul Rudd. He's got Paul Rudd. Right, right. It's Paul Rudd and Yes Man. I actually don't know. I have no idea. 
Yeah. I could have sworn. I could have sworn. As soon as I saw Peyton Reed, I was like, oh, of course. Oh, working right, together. right. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't even mention. Sorry. Yeah. He directs all three of these. Yep. 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 Exactly. Uh, and uh, for oh. those that want to go back even farther, if you grew up with uh, an older sister, uh, bring it on as well. Which, ah. uh, <laughs> if I if I ever have a gun to my head, I can recite surprisingly well. <laughs> I mean, the title really sums up this one. Uh, it is more the same, uh, and and honestly, I think a, a poor execution of what works previously. Granted, I have a serious axe to grind with them getting rid of my favorite aspect, which are the more fleshed out sh- shrunken scenes, yeah. the, the honey and shrunk the kids scenes. I'm not upset about it. As really? Yet. I think I'm just, okay, one, we know that we need them and they need to do it for a bit because mm-hmm. it's crazy. Paul Rudd, whoa, we need, you know, Paul Rudd <laughs> getting used to it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So we need the origin. Mm-hmm. This is what it is. And also bad guy could also shrink. I, I don't think she can though. No, 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 in the first one. Oh, right, yes, yes, of course. And, and, and yeah, it, so since bad guy can shrink in, in the first one, it just makes sense that we're having since these sh- that we're having these shrunken scenes. <laughs> Corey Stoll. Yes. Goofy. Season one of <laughs> <laughs> Season one of House of Cards. So in the second one, it's like, okay, we get it now. I would I I'm not gonna disagree. One or two would have been nicer. Yeah. But our, our we we're not we're dealing with a different kind of bad guy. Mm. And Paul Rudd only already knows the deal. We don't need his learning of the experience of shrinking. Yeah. So now it's used much more strategically. You're saying it's much more big, small, it's faster. Yeah. And I like this idea of we're seeing Ant-Man using his abilities that he's now comfortable with. Sure. In Fair. a cool, more action kind of way. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, I, I just think as far as the, the film's strength, it, it puts to the sideline uh, what was easily the biggest highlight for me. You know what I mean? I think visually those are the strongest, the most iconic. Uh, and, totally agree. To- and totally definitely agree. the best looking, you know? Yeah, uh, as far as the summary here, upon discovering the quantum realm, uh, Dr. Hank Pym believes there is a chance to save his long-lost wife uh, and reshape his once whole family. Uh, a laundry list of requirements are, are needed uh, to, to get that done, roping in Scott Lang once again to work with Pym, and now alongside his former love interest, uh, Hope, uh, Hope Van Dyne, I think her name is. Uh, Evangeline Lilly. Yeah. This spawns a cat and mouse with his shrunken lab headquarters uh, as a new villain, the ghost, or just ghost, is after the same quantum technology to save herself. I would say, admittedly, the last film was placed awkwardly as a bridge to Captain America Civil War, like I said. Mm. Uh, we get uh, some cameos in that film uh, that that kind of create that bridge there uh, and introduce Scott Lang to the greater you know the greater MCU. This coming after that film brings so much more baggage though. Characters are constantly referencing the previous film, and yeah. I don't know if it's because Civil War is one of my least favorite MCU films, but I found this to be much more overdone it's it's constantly weaving in mcu can uh you know continuity and i just felt it was it was too much they're they're referencing the the accords uh he has a, a parole agent uh presumably a part shield or something like that you know i felt it was just so much interwoven it was like kind of sickening and uh to to go back yeah. and experience yeah. this a something that in the grand scheme will not really matter that much for where you know the big the big blockbusters are going to be with Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, I felt uh, it was it was a little bit annoying for me. Yeah, I, I, so I agree with that as well. Yeah. I wondered, I, did they both come out in 2018? I believe so. Yeah, uh, Ammon and Wasp was right before 
Endgame or Infinity War? I don't know if it was. I but think I, it might have been in between. What I'm saying is in relation to Civil War, because that's what we're talking. He, this yeah. was this was after Civil War, right? But that's what the in reference to. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. But that, that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if at the time of this making it. Do they think it's fresh in everybody's mind? Do they think that everyone is up to date and, and understanding? So it's a c- continuation. It's yeah, a, uh, it's. Uh, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's again. I'm in the outlier here. I really don't like Civil War. However, it is a huge movie for it's fans a, it's, of the MCU. Right. It's Avengers two point or one point five. Two point uh, five. Two point five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which it is. It's what yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, it's it's a Russo Brothers joint. <clears throat> I just so. don't know if, it, yeah, and the reason why I bring up the whole timing of it is because if this is our first Marvel movie we get after yep. Civil War, mm-hmm. then I can see if they think that just naturally this is more fresh for everybody sure. or something sure. like that. Yeah, yeah. I would say it's uh, a lot less funny. <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this. I thought this was even less funny than the first one. Because there's less attempted jokes or the jokes don't land even more? I think the jokes don't land even more. Perfect example is there's a FaceTime interrogation scene. They allow Scott Lang to do some FaceTime. And it was just like, man, this is like, this is Thor Love and Thunder bad. Like, this is modern MCU uh, bad comedy. I, I think that this movie encapsulates it. But uh, what what are your thoughts? No, I think it's bad. I think it was terrible in the first one, just <laughs> as it was in Thor. Right. And I also think maybe some of the stuff landed a little bit more. I, I felt like this movie was a little bit more serious. Yeah? Yeah, totally agree. The FBI yeah. agent. Oh, yeah. It's just like, please stop. Like, get go out of the away. movie. Yeah, please go away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I totally agree. So, I don't know. I, I, I feel like... I feel like it was was a little bit more serious. I'm yeah. glad that we developed Michael Douglas a little bit more, but I think you're totally right. Sure. I, it, the scene was bad. Yeah. yeah. Was bad. I, I like think Lawrence. that's that single-handedly is worse than anything in Ant-Man 1. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Michael Penn is just like not really? good at it. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's surprising. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm listen, I'm not like hardcore dying on a sword for him, but yeah. I even and again, even the bad character in this felt more serious and more real. When mm. you first see the couple times, it's uh-huh. like, oh, this is kind of creepy. This is good. Sure, sure. You know, and you never felt that with goofy ball guy. <laughs> Very so, true. <laughs> it's much given t- I hope we get the <laughs> chance to revisit a Cory Stall uh, a film at some point <laughs> in the podcast to call him Goofy Bald Guy once again. Uh, I think there's also much more of a family family spin than the last one, and we see this clocked up as well for the third entry here. You see the shift from cool criminal to dad vigilante in Scott's character, and I think that's, again, an important element of how this comedy is being sold. It's no longer we're surrounded by criminals, we're surrounded by people trying to operate in between the law and Avengers and bad guys and and S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA. Instead, it's now just like, well, Scott's a dad and he also is a a family man and he's also... He's best friends with his ex-wife's husband now. (laughs) Right. A stepfather. Ridiculous. (laughs) Ridiculous. I just think um, it's just got a lot worse writing, uh, a lot of boring techno babble, uh, and little uh, little weight given to it. There's a line that I wrote down. You should be fine if you modify your units on the diffractor regulator. Uh, that means exactly nothing. 
<laughs> uh, and that's what I mean by techno babble. If folks you're not familiar with I, that kind of uh, like a writing term, or I didn't. Something like I that. didn't think it was technical enough. Oh, really? I thought it was so dumbed down and generic. I got I got upset at that line. Yeah, because it was too basic. Sure, I wanted go more. in deeper. Well, if this the doctor is this smarty pants, yeah, and Paul Rudd is supposed to be an engineer, yeah, or, or whatever. True, I wanted to be. I want almost to get confused with the language. Yeah, we're constantly. I, I want to think these guys deserve to be in these positions, but yeah. it's not. It's Michael Douglas doing one. Line. I will say the one liners with Paul Rudd were worse than this one. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and, he, and you're they so can't right sell because they, they can't sell him. He he plays constantly the idiot in the room. He says, "Oh yeah, I understand that," or something like that. He's it's supposed constant. to be smart too. It's, it's constant. It's yeah, constant. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's also a very frustrating plot, uh, and and frustrated how it interacts as. Scene to scene, the plot is a detour away from our character's goals, and I think the film feels just a lot more blah as a result. I mean, this this cat and mouse with the with his lab, kind of fun, but I think it's really pulling teeth after a while. And and also, uh, this is what uh, I have a big problem with. And flashing back to last week with uh, with Magic Mike, what is with sequels resetting the love interest? Like I don't get. Why we have to uh, reset the love interest? I don't think we had that. much of a love interest. We barely had love interest in the first one. Uh, a little bit, <laughs> like a tiny little bit. Were you sleeping? No, <laughs> no joking, joking. I, 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 it wasn't all that much there. I think yeah. it was almost assumed. And it just kind of happened. And right, the second it was one, comic booky. Yeah, yeah, and we're dealing with like, oh, they're angry at him this time around. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't <laughs> right, know. Right. It's whatever. And, and and like I said already, I mean, the worst aspect for me is these less innovative, shrunken scenes. Um, I think in a lot of instances, it's replaced with that quicker, quicker shrink, grow punch. That is, yeah. Basically, all of Ant Man now, and worst of all, I would say Scott's new power of enlarging his sign size is again a complete reversal of my praise of why I think the CGI works. I can agree with that completely because yeah. now we're just dealing with Paul Rudd Godzilla. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think a 2018 Marvel Rush CGI artists are going to it's going to look drastically worse than the. You know, I wouldn't say the careful, but the the curated type of approach is saying, how do we shrink down an environment? What right. does Ant Man interact we, with that environment like? Right, the fibers yeah. of the carpet. Yeah, and, and what, the, what 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 textures are familiar to the audience? Yeah. You know, that's where the praise is for the first. And to- again, I totally agree. This enlargement is a complete reversal of that. I think it looks like trash. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think there's a single CGI shot in this that would even come close to the worst of first Ant Man, and that's just such a disappointment. I'm going to go out uh, on a wild guess and say the best elements of the last film were probably the remnants of Edgar Wright's script, but that could just be wish fulfillment on my end. Um, but this one was a real slog to get through uh, with some impossibly sloppy writing. <laughs> uh, and uh, no spoilers, but the ending has some real lame plot convenience that made me Super angry and just turn my brain off altogether. Uh, this one gets a pass from me, but I don't think anyone will miss it except the fella <laughs> across the desk from me. We're going to go ahead and give Ant-Man and the Wasp a 34. Wow, in the 30s. <laughs> wow. Yeah, We're this not was, a fan. This was uh, a notch above Love and Thunder for me. Um, oh my god! I'm, I'm serious. I hated that movie. Oh, I feel you. Love and Thunder. No, this is. Whew, I can't believe. I can't believe how frustrated you were with the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Walter Goggins couldn't save it for you, huh? Walter <clears throat> Goggins, our boy. 
admit it to me though, he's a little lame in this. I mean, talk about night yeah. and day with Fat Man. You yeah, know? he's barely a character. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. 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 I still like to see him on screen. It's true. And by the way, when I say this is bad, I'm still going to hold true that I think this is a little bit better. I almost wish I watched two first and then one. Mm. See how my tune It'd would change. That'd be interesting. That'd be interesting. I would say this still would get a shoe. Right. This is still one shoe. We're, we're right. not jumping. I feel like Marvel for you is all going to be just one shoe, honestly. Wow, that's, <laughs> it, that's a genius thing you just said there, man. <laughs> I'm not really going to think about that. <laughs> right, right. Maybe with very, very few exceptions. But I really do think that's an important perspective because you're not a comic book fan. I wish you're, I... you're seeing these as, you know, the massive amount of audiences yeah. that may just tune in for one random film. They're not tuning in for yeah. every single in the I'll try to maybe catch timeline. up on YouTube or something like yeah, that before yeah. it. There is a – one of our first podcasts we did, I almost feel like trying to go back and cipher through. You gave a phrase to what mm. Marvel movies are, and it was genius. And really? I told myself never to forget it because <laughs> I would love to bring it up again for you. <laughs> We're totally it. forgot it. <laughs> We're totally forget it. We're on episode 71. What are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but okay, uh, 30 – when covering Black Widow. Maybe, around maybe, then. maybe. But it was overall you said some type of th- – I think it was actually Spider-Man, maybe. Mm. No Way Home. But, uh, yeah, and he was like, I, I've never heard it summed up in one sentence before mm-hmm. like you did. So really good job before. <laughs> good job on that thing that 34% you Ant-Man and the Wasp. Harsh, a little harsh, but hey. I can see how you got there at least. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so now, folks, just before we do our last film here, remember... We are completely producer-supported. If you want to be a producer, you go to thedailyratings.com, you go to the donations tab, and you donate whatever amount of value that you feel you're getting from the podcast and website. If you're enjoying yourself, you're, you're making your own movie lists through what we have to say and Vin's reviews, then, hey, could you throw us back some value, and it's whatever number you want that to be. You write it in a note, we're going to read it here on air, and that's how you become a producer of The Daily Ratings. It's a value-for-value value model, and we thank all of you who have, and hopefully soon will, produce the daily ratings we appreciate mm, it absolutely all right Ben. now with that we're gonna go to we had ant-man then we had ant-man and the wasp now we have ant-man and the wasp <laughs> quantum mania they get longer and clumsier <laughs> uh, besides a few brief sentences reading about this i wanted mm. to stay away from other critics i kind okay. of just to see what you had to say about sure. it so if you can set it up a little bit or overall how did we return here five years later mm. uh to the ant-man story yeah uh once again ant-man is kind of put in an interesting position his 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 film is being used as a tool and this we have uh, the big bottleneck for phase four in the MCU um, and honestly yeah well phase like four has been all over Ant-Man the place Ant-Man is the biggest swinging guy now <laughs> right which exactly. is what well, he was the afterthought <laughs> right. in phase one practically yeah absolutely you know? absolutely when it comes to you know phase four ranging quality I mean we have the lows of Thor Love and Thunder but we also have bright spots like Raimi's you know very creative take on Doctor Strange and whatnot, but one thing was certain, and I've been saying this for every review leading up to this, we need a villain to build up to, and in Quantumania, we finally have the attempt to introduce our next big bad, Kang the Conqueror. Kang is, um, it's a tough villain to do. This is much harder to implement than, like, Josh Brolin putting a voice on CGI Thanos. Okay, tell us who, who tell us who Kang is. Then. Uh, Kang really is a... Really give us the lowdown here. Uh, <laughs> here, let me, let me, uh, I, I was gonna save it for the end, but... I think it's good just because you're very good at knowing characters. Sure. And because we're going through so much with Marvel. Yeah. Why yeah. should we give a damn? Well, place him in the universe for us. Cause, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people, me included. Why should we give a damn? Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> right. where does he come from? What what comic does he spawn out of? Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. So Kang is uh, a big-time villain in uh, the origins of Fantastic Four. 
and I would say that's important to note because no doubt he is going to probably, I would imagine, make an appearance in the Fantastic Four reboot that's coming out in 2025. With with losing so many big stars in the MCU, potentially as well, I would imagine that Fantastic Four movie is going to be, you know, a lot uh, on a, riding on its shoulders. Yeah, yeah I think definitely. Uh, so far, we've seen him in the Disney Plus show Loki, uh, and now he makes a, an appearance here for his big screen impression. Uh, Kang's played by Jonathan Majors, um, and we will see him again in, in Creed 3. Uh, and uh, I think he did a pretty good job. I'll say he is like I well, like I said just a moment ago, he's playing a, a much tougher role than just giving an evil voice to a, a CGI character like Josh Brolin did with Thanos. Instead, I mean, he has to sell an on-screen performance, uh, a certain buffness that comes with every Marvel character now. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. Uh, and yet Kang is a deeply intellectual character, a mastermind. Uh, and I feel like it's just a tough juggling act. Also, Kang as a character has been all around uh, the timeline, you, you know, in basically the MCU, time, or not the MCU, the, the, the comic book timeline, Kang is able to travel to any point in time, any dimension he wants. So that's just so much you have to bake into a performance. And I definitely see an attempt from Jonathan Majors to make him otherworldly right uh, yeah. he's he's not really like talking proper but you see that there's a there's a different approach taken to this character i don't know if that is the most menacing thing though i don't think hmm. kang was sold as a uh as this you know this big bad like we need him to be uh, well if he has that kind of powers mm-hmm. it's definitely something to build on yeah absolutely for sure now his physical appearance is it a, is it Big time CGI, or is it really we're dealing with him and his and his buffness? Yeah, it, the it, actor's it, buffness. It's him. You, we we see we don't really see his buffness in, in until a few scenes uh, in the film, but it's basically classic. Uh, I mean, it's really honestly all over this film. It's the it's the Iron Man from Infinity War. It's, it's the nano suit. Uh, it kind of comes over them. Ah. They get covered in the CGI body. Yes, basically. yes, so, okay. The helmet will come down. You'll see Majors acting. You'll see him, you know, as he normally is. But then he's covered in kind of like a CGI skin, if you will. Okay. Uh, the same is true, actually, for all of the all of the Ant Man suits that we see in this for Ant Man and the Wasp. It's just this uh, this you know nano suit that covers over them. I think it looks lame, but it's honestly everywhere now. So yeah, it I mean, is. We can't escape it. You know. I, I think my note for, for Major is that he has a lot of work to do because he's not terrible at selling the character in this, but the character is nowhere near as menacing, I think, as, as it needs to be. And I think this is a byproduct of why are you pairing it up with your last comedy star? The Ant-Man is a comedy hero property. Why are we not only sidelining, once again, in his own film to give the spotlight somewhere else, uh, I just feel like it's just a poor, poor mismatch to try to um, sell this, you know, one of the biggest bads of all time right. uh, in this comedy, you know, vehicle for Paul Rudd. I comedy mean, hero vehicle, if that makes sense. It makes sense, but look at, I mean, just look at Marvel. I mean, look at Thor. Yeah. It's a horrible comedy. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? What What isn't comedy now? Yeah, I know. It's the Marvel kitschiness. So to it. it's like, well, where and else? You can, yeah. 
you can maybe say the same with like the Guardians uh, films that those are comedies, but is they're kind yet of all comedies. still introduced like Thanos's crew uh, who, or, who or his would, presence. Who would you like to? See? Okay, if we're gonna have Kang the Conqueror, whatever his name is, okay, mm. we we have to get people used to him, yep. build up his bad badness for sure, whatever. Where do you think he does belong? With what character is sparring against first? I think it's a Fantastic Four, and uh, I hate to say it, but you got to bring back Doctor Doom once again uh, for the third time. Who's um, Doctor Doom? Doctor Doom is the oh, uh, the guy with the green cloak, metal face. Um, he's a bad guy? He's, he's the bad guy in every Fantastic Four. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 but I'm, t- but I'm talking about it's to introduce this bad character. Yeah. I think it, you, it, you, it you needs... put him. You put him in Fantastic Four. You put him in a more serious. That's type what I'm of saying. Thing. That we're running out of those. And we are. We are. You know what I mean? Like um, Morbius doesn't count, right? Because that's no, Sony no, no, stuff. Yeah. That's Sony property. Yeah, that's in the, on its own island. Okay. Thank, thank God. I don't know where well. we are. Or what about that one with Angelina Jolie that no one remembered? Eternals. Uh, Eternals. Would he I fit mean, there? Who knows? Who knows where Eternals going right. to be positioned? <laughs> are we going to start a Marvel podcast? Yeah, I guess we're, so. we need, <laughs> you're going to have to read up. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, uh, let's 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 take a step back here because uh, we 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 dived directly into Kang, and I think you know that's where a lot of the curiosity with this film is. Uh, and again, I think uh, there's almost a utilitarian perspective to using Ant Man once again to be a bottleneck to the next stage, the next phase. Uh, so he's like I said with Black Widow, like I said with countless other Marvel uh, films lately. Ant Man gets sidelined in his own movie to be a platform for majors uh, as Kang. Uh, I don't think it's a terrible thing because guess what? Ant-Man has been trending pretty bad. So <laughs> I, I was kind of open to it. I was kind of I was kind of fine with him getting his film hijacked. So uh, Quantumania, <laughs> Quantumania kicks off with us checking in on Ant-Man's success after being a pivotal role in the events of Endgame. Uh, his daughter, now grown to be the spitting image of her heroic father, begins touring with technology alongside Dr. Pym in probing the quantum realm. However, when warned of the dangers of the tech, it is already too late as the whole ant family... I actually don't remember if the ant family was a term used in the film or not, but it's pretty good. (laughs) ...is dragged into the quantum realm to discover an equally mind-blowing and dangerous new world. Straight up, this film is trying to be Thor Ragnarok. 100% Mm, trying to copy Thor Ragnarok. It doesn't have the same flip from fantasy to sci-fi, but it's identical in introducing far-out sci-fi worlds that is an open slate for new characters, wacky comedy, and a razzle-dazzle for the audience in both concept and design. Mm. Uh, However, uh, switching up changes the visual language of the Ant-Man franchise. We're no longer anything to do with heisting. We're no longer doing anything with criminals and kind of if you will, street-level crime or street-level heroes. Mm-hmm. It's now a CGI, uh, you know, 99% CGI, and it's kind of a mess for that reason. This CGI comes with very good and very bad. I would say as a positive is uh, there are some really wild sci-fi designs. I was really impressed with how adventurous and how wild a lot of the concepts were. Uh, the home film is a barrage of... 
you know, insane alien designs that all kind of pass a believability because this quantum realm is like completely fiction. Right, right. Um, it's also interesting because I was trying to compare it to something and the best thing I could come up with is that it's Journey to the Center of the Earth and Tron because this wow. like shrunken, this hidden world is ruled by a, a, a totalitarian government. So it was really like this kind of shrunken Tron type it's like of thing. The, it's like the users versus the program. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gangs the program. I'm going to so. like three the most. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you should have watched it. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so I, I want to give a lot of praise because uh, I am... This sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am not... You know, a self-described sci-fi nut uh, without loving design yeah. and loving new design. And there was a lot of love. There was some freshness there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. However, it does come with the bad. And I would say the CGI is taken to an extreme. Like I said, it's like 99% CGI. Uh, I personally felt that there was such an extreme disconnect between actors and their wild environments on screen. It adds to the unusually stale tone, and uh, this film, believe it or not, is a little bit stale. When mm. Kang's not on screen, believe it or not, it's kind of boring. Uh, even for all this, you know, this 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 wild new world that we're discovering, uh, and stale is exactly what I would use as um, a word for all of the performances. There is such a conflict with the intended tone of the film dragged out by Kang being a super super villain and then as well in this 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 Thor Ragnarok kind of setup of just let's get introduced to the new world and let's be let's be dazzled by it. Right. Um I felt like it was just could not find its footing and comedy wise, performance wise, that's where it couldn't find its footing. Reminded me of like actors first interacting with computer graphics and just not knowing what's going on. Or or actually, let me make a Lord of the Rings callback. Okay. Um, when um, Ian McKellen... Yes. When Ian McKellen broke down crying filming The Hobbit. Because <laughs> he's like, this is no longer acting. He wasn't like, acting with people, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's exactly that. Okay, so, gotcha. And I think that affects comedy most of all. So Was comedy tried as much, though? Oh, absolutely. Was it... Oh, okay. Attempted. Just like the very first note was a, is attempted satire. The, because the writing crew was different from the second one to the first one. Yep. And it was still like four people. We're dealing with one writer this time, Jeff Loveness. Or Love, yeah, Loveness. Interesting. But okay, that's a shame. Yeah. I, I would say an issue that I had with this one is that half the, the story teases out very slowly. And unfortunately, it's all on Michelle Pfeiffer's character. I mean, I love Michelle Pfeiffer. Love her in Scarface. Not but... so much in Ant-Man and the Wasp <laughs> quanta Quantumania. <laughs> love her in Batman Returns. She's a great Catwoman. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I was, um, you know, honestly excited to see her performance. She was almost unbelievably, I think, the worst part here. Um, wow. She has, I mean, we go from a character that literally knows everything about this realm, about the quantum realm. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, and in this setup, in this Thor Ragnarok setup, you know, our characters don't know. They're fish out of the water. They're, they're you know, fighting for survival, basically. Uh, and then Kang kind of looming over in this in this pressure for it. She knows the whole deal. Yeah. And she yet, very frustratingly, and for no reason, she withholds information, not even from Ant-Man. It's her direct family. Uh, it just makes no sense how information and plot is teased out so slowly in this film. It's very frustrating. Uh, <laughs> I would say, you know, the, you know, the plot is like 
they, they want you to believe they are stuck in the most dire situation, yet the character that has the answer to solve the dire situation is just not giving the answers. Just and that's talking. Yeah, yeah that, that's when I turn my brain off because I'm like, all right, this is clearly trying to fill the runtime or set up again Kang as a platform in yeah. the Ant-Man movie, you yep. know? So... And uh, I, I already talked about Kang to death. Uh, that was going to be kind of my final notes. Again, if I can kind of just summarize that, I think Jonathan Majors does a good job, has almost uh, an impossible role to film, mm. uh, to, to, to fill. Um, you know, we're getting into weird, out there characters in the MCU as they're running through the barrel. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? I think, if anything, this this really illuminated for me that when we do get a Galactus or when we do get really high-end cosmic powers in the MCU as villains, I think all the more we have to make them tied to character work. Uh, just how Josh Brolin was able to create a magnetic villain that yeah. you know you could almost agree with as far as motives. I think that really needs to be clocked up uh, quite a bit to sell these these out there characters. And Kang is one of those you know one of the most wild villains uh, in comics. And this bleeds into really my final thought with the film. If this is a, a poor Ant Man platform uh, and a lukewarm introduction to Kang, who most you know without a doubt we will get more screen time with. Really, is it worth it at all? I'm gonna go ahead and give and get ready the, the, the mouth, the mouthful. Ant Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, a 44. Interesting score. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this. Really? Yeah, I thought for sure it was just gonna be the worst. Mm. I can't believe you liked the second one that oh, little. Yeah. I'll tell you what though, the audience score, Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. for this film, 84. Really? 84 for the audience. Okay, so right now we have Quantumania. Yeah. We'll do, we'll run down the whole Rotten Tomatoes thing. So Quantumania, the audience score for the first one was an 85. Okay. Second one was an 80. Yep. Third one is, is, is tracking at an 84. Wow. Okay. The critics gave, first of all, the second one an 87. Okay. Props, props, baby. Props. props. <laughs> <laughs> they liked the first one the best. The first time uh, Tom will praise Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> The second one, the best. The first one, the second best. And they hated the uh, the third one so far. But yeah. I'm surprised for you, 44%, 10 above Ant-Man and the Wasp. It just surprised me. But it's also a bigger movie. More things are going on as well. That's sure. for sure. Especially uh, if they're trying to deal out bad guy number two. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, I've, I've said a lot on it. Uh, the only other thing that I'll, I'll throw out there is that, again, in this kind of... I don't know. Marvel, almost to your point, or what we said with Marvel is always going to be one shoe. I feel like this movie hits on such a middle point. It's meant as a plug for other movies. It's meant as a plug yeah. for a villain. It's just kind of like, it would have been I don't know, it feels like homework. It would have been one shoe. Yeah. yeah. It would have been one shoe. It would have been one shoe. <laughs> it would have all been one shoe. That's a great way. I love how we now... <laughs> We're describes. tuning in the Tommy Two Shoes. Little by well, little. Now it's just like, well, you know the problem with Marvel movies is they're all just they're all just one shoes. They're all just one And shoe. there's there's a small crew You're out there who around. knows what that means. <laughs> and by the way, I will say the critics like the second one the best. Yeah. But an eighty seven? Are you it's, kidding me? It's, yeah. It was a hot garbage. This was like, you can't even Rotten Tomatoes has nothing. Nothing. <laughs> they were nothing. They exist for people to shit on. Right, right. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Okay, we're running late here. Vin, do you have anything uh, you want to catch up on? Anything you want to say to, to all of us? Or, no, uh, I think credits? that's good. Yeah, this ran late, uh, but uh, glad to glad to cover the end. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm Many sorry. an end. I was a chatty Cathy today. I'm sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
Uh, Vin, thank you so much for sitting through these films here. Uh, we'll see you next week. We appreciate it. Folks, we're going to run it down one more time here. We have The Barclays of Broadway. But that feels like we did that two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. The Barclays of Broadway with a 76%. Pretty in Pink with a 65%. Ant-Man with a 67%. Ant-Man and the Wasp with a 34%. And Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania with a 44%. Folks, we thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Daily Ratings Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, if you would, could you give us a good rating or tell a friend about us? If you're wondering if a film is worth a watch, or if you'd just like to see more movie ratings from Vince, be sure to stop by thedailyratings.com, where we have our ever-expanding catalog of films. Also, if you found value in the podcast or our site, become a producer and go to the donations tab on thedailyratings.com. You can donate whatever amount of value you feel you received from us. We're looking to build this into something large and great, but also be independent from those corporate sponsors. We greatly appreciate any support from you all. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast.